I think more than any other play, perhaps more than anything else in world literature, King Lear brings us face to face with the most basic questions of life, of life's very possibility, of the foundations of any human contract. It strips things bare and asks what remains. It forces us to attend to and account for the evidence before our eyes. The play rips things away and asks what, if anything, can be built from the wreckage. King is also a play about human weakness. It's about temptation and the pain and beauty and vulnerability of love. King Lear is a, a play about family. It's, a, it's about what it's like to live in a family, about the blindness and ignorance and passions and unspoken feelings that exist within families. So it's a combination of both. So on the one hand, the large, huge cosmic questions, mortality, what it means to live in a body that you know that the, the sense is there, is there any purpose to life these huge questions but then the, the intimate ones as well i'm simon palfrey i'm a professor of english at brazos college university of oxford welcome to shakespeare for all today we're talking with professor simon palfrey about king lear Written around 1605, this play has perhaps the most expansive cosmic vision of all of Shakespeare's tragedies. The play is based on English chronicle sources, which tell the story of a king from Britain's ancient past who divides his kingdom between his two eldest daughters, only to have them rise against him. In Shakespeare's play too, King Lear divides his kingdom between his daughters Goneril and Regan, believing mistakenly that they love him more than his youngest daughter, Cordelia. Disastrous consequences follow that strip the aged king and, it seems, the whole world down to nothing. In the world of King Lear, no dignity and no possession can be taken for granted. Everything is vulnerable. Everything is open to loss. House, home, nation, family, name, identity, love, your own body, your own mind, your hold upon where or who or whether you even are. And the world of King Lear is a liminal world. It's in between human and non-human, living and dead, ends and beginnings. It's life, if we can imagine life as a storm or life at the edge of a cliff or life in a no place as empty as a stage. King Lear occupies all these places. King Lear was published in two substantially different versions, in 1608 and 1623. Our summary is based primarily on the 1623 folio text. In both texts, the play opens with a dramatic political scene. Lear, the aged king of Britain, has decided to hand over the responsibility of ruling to his three daughters. He has assembled his court and is preparing to divide the kingdom. But who will get the biggest share depends on who wins the test that Leah sets. Tell me, my daughters, he says, which of you shall we say doth love us most? He wants to be able to say to other people which of his daughters love him the most. And so it's this kind of boastful vanity of, 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 of the father where you have this enormous act of dividing the kingdom, which, of course, would be 
the worst possible thing to do in a nation would be to divide your kingdom. It's a recipe for disaster. Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the reign of King James I, who was king of both Scotland and England. James petitioned Parliament to unite England and Scotland into a single kingdom, stressing how a divided kingdom leads to tumult and civil war. The play's first audiences, watching Lear divide his kingdom, would likely have anticipated that strife would follow. And indeed it does. The two eldest daughters, Goneril and Regan, pledge that they love Lear beyond anything else in life, beyond what words can say. Lear, pleased, gives them each a third of the kingdom. The youngest daughter, Cordelia, knows that her love for Lear is far more genuine than her sister's. But putting that love into words would sound like she was simply repeating her sister's flattery. She expresses this dilemma in an aside to the audience. What should Cordelia speak? Love and be silent. Then Leah asks Cordelia what she can say to outdo her sister's. We already know that Cordelia is, going to, is, is under pressure to speak her truth because she's told us. And so she's kind of unable to speak to Lear because the only truth she can speak is to the audience. And she says, nothing. Nothing, my lord, says Cordelia. Leah is taken aback. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again, he commands. Cordelia replies that she loves her father according to her bond, but when she marries, she will give half her love to her husband. Leah is enraged. He disinherits Cordelia, saying she will be a stranger to his heart forever. When Leah's faithful adviser Kent tells him he is making a terrible mistake, Leah banishes Kent. But the King of France, who has come to court as Cordelia's suitor, admires her steadfast virtue and asks to marry her. Leah divides the kingdom between Goneril and Regan and says he will live alternately with each of them, bringing a hundred knights with him and retaining the name and all the addition to a king. He still wants a king's title and authority. Goneril and Regan wonder anxiously what further irrational demands Leah will make, saying, he hath ever but slenderly known himself. The play juxtaposes Leah with another father and his children, the Earl of Gloucester, who has two sons. The younger, Edmund, is a bastard, born outside of wedlock, and so he won't inherit his father's land, titles or property. He is automatically disinherited by his birth, as Cordelia has been disinherited by her father's decree. But Edmund fiercely questions the social customs that deprive him of status in a soliloquy to the audience that parallels Cordelia's earlier aside. Both these children are placed in these these situations, slightly oppressive circumstances where they aren't allowed to speak speak their minds and they can only speak their minds in silence or when they're by themselves. Edmund forms a plot to ruin his older brother Edgar and to obtain his inheritance. 
Edmund tricks his father Gloucester into thinking that Edgar is plotting against his life. Just as Leah cannot see that Cordelia actually loves him most, Gloucester cannot see that Edgar is no traitor. Gloucester sends Edmund to apprehend the villain Edgar and promises to reward Edmund. The scene transitions to Goneril's house, where Leah and his hundred knights are staying. The exiled Kent enters in disguise and pledges to serve Leah faithfully. Goneril's servant Oswald, meanwhile, treats Leah rudely. This angers the king, but his jester, the fool, reminds him that he brought about this disagreeable situation through his own folly. Dost thou call me fool, boy? asks Leah. All thy other titles thou hast given away, the fool replies. Goneril tells Leah that his men are wreaking havoc in her house and asks him to send half of his followers away. Leah is outraged at her challenge to his authority. Calling her degenerate bastard, he curses her and prays that her children torment her too, so that she too may feel how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Goneril's unkindness seems to make him think differently about Cordelia. I did her wrong, he says. Meanwhile, Edmund is advancing his plot to displace Edgar. He tells Edgar their father wants to arrest him and convinces him to flee. Gloucester sends men after him. To disguise himself, Edgar strips off his clothing, smears himself with mud and pretends to be poor Tom, a beggar who is ostensibly mad, but whose speeches echo strangely with many of the play's key ideas. The particular thing that I've been most interested in in Lear is, is trying to come to terms with the role of Edgar and the role of poor Tom. The, 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 that role has the second most lines in the play after the, that of the king. I, I actually think that the figure of poor Tom is the crucial figure for taking the play into the sort of metaphysical the metaphysical territory that everyone recognises that the play enters, but it's, it's poor Tom who takes us there. Leah goes to find Regan, saying that he and his knights will stay with her instead. He expects sympathy and obedience from her, but when Goneril arrives, Regan joins with her sister in telling Leah to dismiss his followers. Why does he need a hundred knights, they ask, or fifty, or ten, or even one? He's run away from Goneril's place because he's insulted. He goes there expecting to get looked after better. And what you get is this kind of slow, inexorable, remorseless cutting away of Lear's presence in that world. You know, 100 nights, 50, 25, 10, 1, none. The outraged Lear now becomes inarticulate in his fury. No, you unnatural hags, I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall... I will do such things. What they are yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. I shall go mad. 
Leo rushes out of the house into the storm that is raging outside. Goneril and Regan, determined to teach him a lesson about his own folly, lock the doors on him. Leah is now trapped in an inner and outer tempest. When Leah goes out into that storm, he's left the social world in, sort of in, entirely. It's like the, the curtain has been torn and he's entered this, this torn world, this drowned world, this world where none of the rules apply. Kent goes out into the storm to look for Leah. Still believing in his absolute authority, Leah is seeking to command the storm itself. Blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage, blow. You cataracts and hurricanoes spout till you have drenched our steeples. And thou, all shaking thunder, smite flat the thick rotundity of the world. I think Lear often speaks in a way, he's like a sort of titan figure who, who, who doesn't really speak in metaphor. He just expects his words to come true. And this is why when he's cursing the storm, this is just natural for him because he's on, he's on the same level as the gods or something, you know, this, or this is what he, he believes. Kent finds Lear and the fool and persuades them to take shelter in a hovel. My wits begin to turn, says Leah. How dost, my boy? Art cold? he asks the fool. I have one part in my heart that's yet sorry for thee. They follow Kent into the hovel. At first, Leah focuses on his own sufferings. In such a night to shut me out. Oh, Regan Goneril, your old kind father, whose frank heart gave all. But then his attention turns to all those naked wretches that have no shelter to protect them, and he begins to feel pity. I have taken too little care of this, he says. In the hovel, they find Edgar disguised as poor Tom. His distracted speech suggests a fool from status not unlike Leah's. Once, he says, he had horse to ride and weapon to wear, but now he is poor Tom that eats the swimming frog, the toad, the tadpole, and eats cow dung for salads. Poor Tom's a cold, he says. He is also obsessed with the devil, describing his own past acts of darkness and tells Leah to keep thy words justice and beware the foul fiend. Leah seems to find a kind of wisdom in Tom's words and asks to talk with this philosopher. Gloucester also goes to look for the king. Edmund, seizing another chance to increase his fortunes, tells Cornwall that Gloucester is a traitor. Cordelia has landed at Dover with French troops to aid her father, and Edmund says that Gloucester is aiding the enemy troops. Cornwall gives Edmund his father's title and goes to arrest Gloucester. Gloucester finds Leah and tells Kent to bring Leah to Dover so Cordelia can protect him from the enemies who want to kill him. Regan and Cornwall arrest Gloucester and, in a growing rage, Cornwall rips out one of Gloucester's eyes. A servant tries to stop him and even wounds him, but Cornwall takes out Gloucester's other eye. Gloucester cries out for Edmund, but Regan and Cornwall tell him that Edmund handed him over to them in the first place. 
Gloucester realises that he has placed his trust in the wrong son and cries, Oh, my follies, then Edgar was abused. Kind gods, forgive me that and prosper him. In one version of the play, some servants tend to Gloucester's wounds before he is forced outside by Regan and Cornwall. On the road, Gloucester unknowingly meets the son he prayed for, Edgar, still disguised as poor Tom. The father doesn't know it's his son, but the son knows it's his father. You've got the son, as it were, hiding from his own father, not known by the father. And so it's a kind of exquisite but also kind of excruciating moment of family drama. More drama is unfolding in Leah's family too. Cornwall is dead and Regan wants to marry Edmund, but Goneril wants Edmund too. They all send forces to meet the French troops at Dover. The anguished Gloucester arrives at Dover too with poor Tom, still not knowing that the madman is his son. He asks Tom to bring him to a cliff from which he intends to jump. Edgar is leading Gloucester to the cliff so that Gloucester can jump to his death. But it's then again, it's not Edgar, it's poor Tom. It's Mad Tom, as he's called. We've got a naked man or a mad man leading a blind man to the edge of a cliff. Edgar tells his blind father that they are on a cliff's edge, describing the dizzying view down to the sea. But when Gloucester jumps, he just falls lightly on the ground. There was no cliff at all. But Edgar tells Gloucester that he actually did fall off a cliff and landed unharmed. Thy life's a miracle, he tells him, hoping this belief might cure his father's suicidal despair. Gloucester believes the gods have preserved his life and says, Henceforth I'll bear affliction. Just then, Leah enters. As Gloucester has been physically devastated, Leah has been mentally devastated. He has gone mad. He shouts orders to imagined attendants and utters vicious denunciations of women. But, as with poor Tom, his mad words contain a certain wisdom. He recognises how authority can be corrupted. See how yon justice rails upon yon simple thief, changes places and, handy dandy, which is the justice, which is the thief? He also seems to recognise, perhaps for the first time, that even a king has limitations. He says, They told me I was everything. Tis a lie. When the French soldiers escort him back to the camp, he admits, I am a very foolish, fond old man, and, to deal plainly, I fear I am not in my perfect mind. But he does recognise Cordelia, and, in a reversal of his earlier demand for love, he tells her humbly, I know you do not love me. You have some cause. But Cordelia full of compassion for her father, replies, No cause, no cause. And Leah entreats her, Pray you now, forget and forgive. The the play gives us an exquisite scene of reconciliation and redemption, which then isn't the end of the play. 
Their joyful reunion is interrupted by the news that the enemy forces are near. Cordelia's army clashes with that of Edmund and Albany and Cordelia's forces lose. She and Leah are captured and Edmund sends them to prison, but Leah sees their imprisonment together as almost a private paradise in a bleak world. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds of the cage. Without us ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. But no sooner have they entered this imagined paradise than Edmund sends orders to kill Cordelia. Goneril, too, is plotting death. She poisons Regan to keep her from claiming Edmund. She also encourages Edmund to kill Albany so that she can marry Edmund. But Edgar helps Albany discover the plot. Goneril commits suicide and Albany arrests Edmund and invites Edgar in disguise to fight Edmund in single combat. Edgar mortally wounds Edmund and then reveals who he is. He also describes how he finally revealed himself to their father, whose heart burst smilingly at learning he was reunited with his son. Edmund is moved and tries to make amends before he dies. He sends a message to halt the execution of Cordelia, but it is too late. Leah enters carrying Cordelia's dead body in his arms, howling, She's gone forever. She's dead as earth. Kent and Albany try to comfort Leah. Kent removes his disguise and reveals that he has been serving Leah even in exile. Albany declares he will restore Leah to his former power. But Leah can think only of Cordelia, speaking some of the most moving words Shakespeare ever wrote. No, no, no life. Why should a a dog, a horse, a rat have life and there no breath at all? Thou'lt come no more, never, never. Never, never, never. A single line, the same word repeated five times. It's, it's a moment of absolute concentration. In one version of the published text, this despairing line is followed by one that seems to offer hope. Do you see this? Look on her... Look, her lips, look there, look there. Does Leah imagine that he sees breath stirring on Cordelia's lips? Does he believe she might still be alive? We never know, for then Leah dies too. For those left alive, there is little sense of hope. The play ends with bleak lines, spoken in one text of the play by Albany and in another by Edgar. The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most... We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. In the next episode, we'll discuss what exactly we've seen by the end of King Lear, a near-apocalyptic vision of the destruction of the world and glimmers of life's survival. We'll see how this play asks, to paraphrase Lear's Fool, what use can be made of nothing.' 